In the May 2016 edition of the AITPM newsletter, we had a profile of one of our long-standing members, Robert Piconi. He talks about his diverse and interesting career, particularly with road safety and the practical application of traffic engineering from a local to major transport projects. He counts himself lucky that a significant time of his career was, and I quote, being part of the DMR's Traffic Accident Reduction Group and collaboration with colleagues from the Road Safety Bureau during the Harry Campkin era. Now, that era overlapped with the period that led to the establishment of the Australian Institute of Traffic Technology, and, of course, during its formative years and its expansion to become the AITPM. Indeed, Harry's career and the AITPM are integrally linked. For example, an important meeting was held in 1964 to talk about the development of traffic engineering as a profession and the need to have an association that particularly represented the needs of this emerging workforce. The meeting was addressed by Harry Campkin. Harry's work and style helped establish traffic engineering as a necessary, credible and desirable profession to be part of. So a critical, indeed an essential part of the 50th anniversary of the AITPM is to talk to Harry about the life and times of his career and the AITPM. Harry, it's lovely to catch up with you. Well, good morning. Thank you very much for your time. As I say, you were a strong image leader to me as I was growing up through the profession. When did you join the government and how did you get involved in this profession? I graduated in civil engineering, but... uh became rather disenchanted with uh, construction work, which was my first professional career. So I found found an opportunity to go into uh, traffic engineering with the Department of Motor Transport in 1956. And then I was very fortunate to be sent to uh, one of the first uh, traffic engineering programs in the Southern Hemisphere, actually, one run by Professor Ross Blunden at the University of New South Wales. And that was just a certificate program. But it brought together a lot of people, some of them professional engineers, some of them professional planners, and some of them, uh, uh, well, working on the fringes of traffic engineering, like police and uh, bus operators and things like that. And and, uh, that really stimulated my interest in uh, traffic engineering. It was just a job before that, but became a career after that. And uh, things progressed gradually, and I moved up perhaps in parallel with the establishment of the AITPM to a more senior position in uh, the Department of Motor Transport. and uh... They might say it, to move into this profession might have been, if you were, had advisors like Yes Minister, might have called it a brave decision. It was a fledgling profession, wasn't it? What, what was it really like? You, you say 1957 when Prof Blunden's School of Traffic Engineering came in was a pivotal moment. What was it like before that? Well, it was uh, very primitive by uh, today's standards. Uh, most of the traffic engineering uh, consisted of uh, road design allied, allied things like uh, a little bit of line marking and working out what's best sort of uh, warning signs to put on the road and uh, nothing really in the way of speed studies or things like that. We had no real impression, no real idea of uh, the significance of things like uh, speed on uh, on road safety. The application of traffic engineering control measures was left with the police and Department of Motor Transport. And apart from traffic signals, which were very primitive in those days, most of my early work uh, was associated with going out with the local police sergeant and finding out whether we should put a stop sign here or a stop sign there. 
or parking restrictions, things like that. There's no, no concept whatsoever of strategy in those days. We saw a little problem and tried to tackle that problem. No reference to what effect it might have on adjacent intersections, for example. So it was really a firefighting, and of course it was real just sort of seat of the pants. There, there wasn't a lot of science in it. It was really a bit of common sense and trial and error. Yes, that's right. There are a few dusty old textbooks that are available mainly from the States, uh, but uh, nothing even there of a very uh, scientific failure at all, and I think firefighting is an appropriate word for it. You mentioned it in that context of it, if you pardon the pun, being a two-way street, that the students who came to this, uh, and they didn't have to have any other qualifications to it. So it was getting or was starting to get a bit of a broad church there, wasn't it? And they brought experience as well as getting some scientific technical input from the university. That's right. And that, that, that experience was with uh, not only other, other systems and uh, transport systems, but uh, also other ways of looking at the problem, uh, the behavioural aspect, we started to realise then that uh, this was an issue, that uh, you couldn't just take uh, for granted that everyone would behave the same way all the time. We started to realise that uh, the bus operators really had to have a, uh, some sort of influence on the, uh, uh, on the way traffic was uh, managed. Uh, I guess it brought all those... and. and Town planning, I was doing town planning uh, postgraduate degree at the same time too, so uh, my colleagues there were starting to uh, interact with me and uh, realise that you know, it's not just transport, you've got to relate transport to the origins of transport, not it's an interactive thing, but uh, it's transport is a derived function. We can sometimes just focus on capacity when in reality we're focusing on a social activity in order to achieve other things. That's right. If the idea is to move an idea or a person or a packet of goods, you should look at the uh, relationship between the origin of that and the, <laughs> and the destination. We might get round to that a little bit later. Around the 60s then, it became great technical input. I, th I think of um, more scientific processes, more than just gut feeling. But, uh, for example, at that time, computers were coming in there. Did, that in, did those uh, computers engender in, in wider respect into this evolving profession? Or were we scared of them? or were we dismissive? What was the attitude to this technology and machines helping us uh, with our understanding? Well, it wasn't really until uh, the second half of the 60s that we started to realise that uh, uh, technology in the shape of uh, anything other than very primitive computing equipment uh, had a place in traffic control. The uh, computers up till... 1960 that were available in transport departments with just massive database manipulators uh, and they uh, had very little impact on design we, we didn't use them for uh, accident analysis for example except in a uh, data manipulation sense uh, and a record sense predominantly record sense it wasn't until uh, we started to use some still very primitive computing equipment uh, not digital not entirely digital stuff at all, in the 1960s for uh, coordinated traffic signals, late in the 1960s, that uh, 
we started to realise just what could be done. I remember someone like John Carlyle was involved in things like modelling, which again was at very much at its early days, which was using computers and that sort of technology. But as you say, at the coordinated traffic lights, in many ways that was our technology boom or input with work from Arthur Sims and that to be able to look at linking traffic signals together. Before that, we didn't have many. Now we've got quite a lot as part of a system. That's when we started to realise that we should be, should be looking at traffic management rather than just traffic engineering. You've got a system there that you want to manage and the system is a resource, it's a community resource, and your objective should be to maximise it, to it, maximise it, or utilise it, manage it, to uh, attain its maximum utility. It's lovely to think Arthur Sims, of course, had no tertiary qualifications. And so that whole idea of bringing in a broader group of people who had skills rather than just an engineering degree, I thought was rather uh, positive. Very, as you said earlier, multidisciplinary, wasn't it? The police, local council, and as you say, the first foot in the door of even planners. Arthur, of course, did come in from IBM. And he was in the section at IBM that helped to build the uh, first master controller for, uh, for uh, Sydney in 1962. And uh, he, he, in fact, uh, was, the, uh, was the change master from a technical point of view. And as you say, he had no, no uh, professional academic qualifications, as we call them. And he, he had a couple of good assistants, as a Graham Davis, too, who was uh, uh, an absolute... Master is just a technical person but uh, with uh, basic technical qualifications, but the sorts of things they could do in a programming sense and a circuit design sense were quite incredible. So that's a real left field thing. We're talking about people who were involved in traffic before and, and uh, in the in the uh, involved in the design of land systems that are going to generate traffic. Now we've got, we're starting to get people who are designed in, as I say, coming out of left field, designed in equipment, te- involved in equipment technology. Yeah, that's really important, isn't it? Because it raises the point of then people working in the field are not just the manager. You raise the fact that there's other people. But, of course, there are a lot of paraprofessionals there, weren't there? People who couldn't be a member of the Institution of Engineers but were integrally involved at, perhaps at the local level, which is a good point, those are the people you saw a need to reach? Yes, they, they had a lot of local experience and a lot of basic ability. And let's face it, the, the professionals, and particularly those trained in, in, in traffic and road, uh, roads and, and town planning, they weren't available in great numbers at the local level. And very often you couldn't afford to get them spending their time doing some of this paratraffic work, paratransit or paratraffic work, you needed people who were able to operate at that particular level. Again, there's another dimension to this concept of a system. You've got, uh, you've got a design element and an operational element. And you've got people who are familiar with both the design principles uh, operating that t- at, that, at that level and people who are familiar with the operational practices at another level but you need people who are working at the interface too so that's where this particular course of London's I think was very valuable and that's where the Institute of Traffic Planning and Management as it became known from I don't know when probably late 60s 
that's where uh, the values started to derive in bringing those, those various groups of people together. You saw the need for an association to help interact and spread information around that time people were talking about developing something? Yes, uh, they're talking about developing professional organisations and, and, and we didn't see that as the, the optimum answer. We saw this uh, rather freer organisation of people who could bring all those dimensions of skills and experience to play and that's why the AITPM survived, I think. A lot of people recognise this, whereas efforts to establish a professional institute of traffic engineers, uh, uh, as they had in the United States, that found, found it. And in fact, the first meeting was held, you were there, I think you even looked into establishing a newsletter. It was an indication of what was needed and things ahead. Was it a, a very positive time? Was there a, a people looking forward to what it might become? I think so. Initially, initially there certainly was. Uh, but uh, I think it suffered a little bit for a while uh, when the original uh, advocates, if you like, started to move on to uh, other levels in their career, other uh, interests started to come into play and uh, it lost a bit of the momentum for a while and it wasn't until people like Fred Genui came in and uh, started to revitalise it that uh, it came back into play. Well, of course, it was originally called the Australian Institute of Traffic Technology that tended perhaps to focus on those who love their electronics in many ways, and there was an important part for that. But when in, I think, 1972, we changed to the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management, that in some ways, I guess, would reflect the broadening of what needed to be involved? Yes, up until... uh up until the early 70s, we still spoke in terms of traffic engineering and in the uh, Department of Motor Transport and the Department of Main Roads, the two big agencies in New South Wales anyway, people practising in those areas were called traffic engineers, not traffic managers. We, we didn't have a traffic management program. It was really only... Uh, again, Arthur Sims and I went overseas to a, a couple of conferences in 1972 and 1974 and we started to realise that... Uh, the world's moving away from traffic engineering. That's just a part of traffic management. And traffic management in itself is not just a part of transport management, transport system management. So we came back and started to talk to other people in the AITPN, etc., and started to think, well, maybe it's time to formalise this concept of tra- traffic management rather than traffic engineering. And that's when I won't claim any... Uh, any authority to uh, having uh, having stimulated the AITPM to uh, or the AITT to change its name, but uh, that's about the time that that happened. Well, it's interesting that often seeking grand plans has always been more sexy than nerdish technical issues. Yet you still have to have the balance of the two. Oh yes, you've got to have you've, you've got to have. Doesn't matter how good your strategic focus is. Unless you've got people who can uh, uh, look after the more tactical operations, you never get anywhere. And if, you, if you've got all tactical approaches, uh, where's the grand strategy come from or go to? Also, where's the science in trying to develop it? Grand plans can often be vague thinking. You, uh, particularly in your, you're talking about your road safety, you really push the idea of proper analysis 
and uh, even sometimes surprising results, as you would expect in any scientific experiment. To a degree, yes. Uh, I actually took responsibility for the old uh, Traffic Accident Research Unit in uh, 1976 when the Traffic Authority was established. It was still a part of the Department of Motor Transport. It came under the purview of the uh, road safety, became under the responsibility of the Traffic Authority. And the Traffic Accident Research Unit was uh, doing a lot of very fundamental research and getting a lot of good information out. But uh, after a while, we we thought that uh, it wasn't really directed sufficiently towards outcomes or outputs. Uh, and uh, so we, we eventually changed it into a, an organisation which took objectives as the basis of its research rather than fundamental research, seeing that inevitably that would become something that universities would, as they do today, would step into that role. Bit of skid off a few knuckles over that, but it worked out eventually. And we were able to put road safety research into this broader strategic area. Even now we have the debate between pure science and research to achieve financial and other key measure gains. Uh, uh, That remains an an interesting point. Where the research was really, or the practical research was really important, was many people thought the easy option was just to change the driver, the nut behind the wheel, as it's often said, and think that a stern lecture, tell them to drive safely, shock them a bit, and everything will be fine. You started to look at the psychology of the person and the circumstances much more? Well, with the people in the, uh, from the Traffic Accident Research Unit, yes, they had some very good behavioural psychologists there. And when we started to move their research a little bit along the line from basic research to applied research, uh, they were able to bring that sort of element into the field of inquiry. They're very capable, and, and that, that was, it's very important to make that, that distinction, really, and to question, as we did at the time, whether it's the role of a transport agency to do this fundamental research or whether that's the role which is best undertaken by bodies like universities and leave the transport agencies to focus more at the applied end. Now, at that time, there was precious little research being done uh, other than, example, for example, at the Australian Road Research Board, the precious, precious little done un, under uh, university guidance. So we had to maintain an element of that basic research that we did want to move it up the, up the uh, or, or along the uh, scale towards a little bit more towards applied. We had that problem then about allocating of resources. As you say, it's still there. It's important that we maintain a capability within the community of uh, continuing to make unexpected breakthroughs through fundamental research. But at the same time, we've got to deliver results and uh, we won't get money at all unless we can show that we can deliver the results. I read something the other day that said we've got to manage the driver's headspace or more technically there was a paper titled Understanding the Impact of the Driver's Psycho-Psychological Functioning of Exposure to Stressful Events and Adverse Circumstances. A lot of uh, big words, I suppose, but it, it is that balance and it needs some people in government to be broad enough to accept that they're not going to do everything and that you can encourage and foster academic or other people to get involved. It is that balance, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. I guess there's, 
There's a strange analogy there, I think, between behavioural uh, approaches to road safety and uh, economics in that there's a lot of interest these days in behavioural economics and behavioural finances and uh, there's a difference between how how the market reacts or would react uh, under traditional economic approaches and how the, it does react uh, when you take into account behavioural uh, finances, financial approaches. But that's a bit out of left field, I suppose, David. One of our main concerns was that uh, if we couldn't get the traffic accident research on the people involved in that, getting some results on the board, we would lose government support for it anyway. So we had to keep it afloat by, uh, as they say, moving the focus of research a little bit along the line until such time as the universities and other people could come in, come to play. But it was an important step in the development of, if you like, the current philosophy of road safety, which is a, a multi-pillar approach. You've got to seek improvements across the board in drivers, the vehicle and the environment and and the post-environment situation. Well, of course, the vehicle, you were there at the time when probably one of the big achievements was seatbelts. Was that a hard debate? Was that obvious and it was just a question of processing it through? It was obvious to some people, but not obvious, not so obvious to decision makers. There were two people pretty influential in that, but one was a, a David Herbert, who was at one time the head of the Traffic Ethics and Research Unit after Michael Henderson left it. And uh, he uh, introduced compulsory seatbelt using in the Snowy Mountains Authority when he worked for them, and uh, he demonstrated there that he could get uh, that there, there were a lot of uh, lives and injuries uh, saved there. And the other big influence, of course, was in Victoria, where uh, where the introduction of seatbelts, compulsory wearing of seatbelts anyway, was introduced before it was in New South Wales. But the traffic accident research unit people under Henderson at the time, they were very influential in uh, convincing uh, the government that uh, it had to be introduced in New South Wales too. Of course, the other one was drink driving. I remember talking to Peter Brock, who has his had his number for a long time as 05, as campaigning for that level of blood alcohol as being the one that over that you should be booked, whereas other states were lower. That's really getting into a social issue as well, isn't it? It is, and it's very interesting the the way that developed too. Uh, On advice from Taru, we asked the government, this was the traffic authority at that time, we asked the government to uh, introduce uh, 05, but uh, uh, we had 08 at the time. I'm sorry, we didn't have either 05 or 08 prior to 1980. We just had the drive under the influence legislation. We wanted the government to introduce 05 because Victoria was getting good results with it. The government didn't want to do that. They thought that was too harsh. Parenthetically, many of them, we think, were a bit scared that they might get lumbered driving home from late-night sittings of Parliament. So they thought, oh, it might be fair enough, so they introduced that. But the concept of random breath testing was the real big change, the big breakthrough, of course, and, and that was experimented with in Victoria with very mixed results during the 1970s, the late 1970s. The results looked promising, but they weren't 
the sample sizes weren't very big and things like that. So I, I sent some people from Taru down to Victoria to see what they're doing down there that we could build on. And they came back, strangely enough, and said, look, the random breath testing's not the right thing to do. You should focus your efforts because your focusing can be more efficient. But I, I wasn't too happy with that. I, in fact, I found some problems with their analysis and uh, we had another look at it all and, and convinced the uh, New South Wales government eventually that they should set up a, a stay safe, an, inter- an all parties road safety committee to see what Victorians were doing that was uh, giving them such good results. And they came back and, and we, we took some police people down there and some politicians down there and looked at that and said, well, this random breath testing that they're doing there will probably be very good if it was done on a bigger scale. Came back and Stay Safe uh, looked into that and, and recommended it. We did it on a really big scale, uh, much bigger than we'd even envisaged the government would be prepared to do. And that was thanks to George Petrullo, a member for Liverpool at the time, and the prisoners, chairman of so and Peter Cox, the minister at the time. And they were prepared to back that idea, and uh, that was the biggest, if you like, magic bullet we've had in road safety in Australia ever. That came from looking at what other people had done and seeing what we could do to improve it, and that was a multidisciplinary approach too. One of the things you had to do, of course, have to, but you identified that some common sense ideas aren't always that simple or always that right. I think of intense driver training, motor racing drivers and car enthusiasts said it's obviously the the way to go, Uh, shock horror ads or just telling young people they could kill themselves. These are things that are common sense, but you had to sort of say, well, hang on, it's not that simple. Well, that's right. Again, this is where we got a lot of value from the uh, directed research that we got out of the uh, uh, people who had come from Tara, the behavioural scientists we had. We, 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 we gave them this issue and said, yeah, is this true? Uh, they looked at the, uh, they did some meta-research and looked at uh, all the studies made diversely and they said, you'd think it would be true, but the people who are advocating uh, advanced driver training, for example, uh, are not, don't seem to be taking into account that uh, if you give people additional skills, they might seek to exercise those skills before they've developed the right sort of attitude under which they can control that exercise. So that's really the basis of the argument against compulsory advanced driver training, and it's an argument for defensive driver training, if, which is, if you like, an element of advanced driver training. But that is not understood it's still not understood these days by a lot of people. And I think we even have to be very careful of what we define as defensive training. You talked about this understanding the practical realities. You wrote a paper called The Tale of Two Cities. Oh, yes, yeah. That was a, a comparison between the, uh, the strategies that have been developed in, for road safety in Victoria in uh, the late 80s and the strategies we were developing in New South Wales. And it showed that you did have to take account of the differences of the environment and that there were different ways of approaching problems as both of them can get good results. But at the time, we were a bit sensitive to the fact that the Victorian road toll was so much lower than ours, but we were getting uh, 
rather better results from road safety than they got. So I guess it was a... I don't know whether it was a defensive sort of paper or an aggressive sort of paper, but uh, I think it did point out that the direction we were taking towards a uh, cohesive coordinator all of government road safety strategies that we finally finally released in the early 1990s was the right way to go. And that was the way that the uh, national road safety strategies eventually went to. You seemed as though you were breaking down a lot of the barriers between, be it states or even departments, silo departments, departments standing on their own, uh, has always been a problem. I remember when I came into the profession, engineers versus planners were going through that to and fro sort of debate as to who should might have control or who might have the biggest influence. Silo mentality, is that something you've had to fight? Oh, absolutely. And if you like, it stems from the, uh, from the Westminster system of government and cabinet government where uh, ministers have got their own portfolios and that they expect their, their departments to put all their uh, effort into meeting uh, the objectives of that portfolio. That's great so far as it goes and, and provided that the uh, cabinet system works. But if you like, the cabinet is the biggest such group of portfolios of the lot. So Harry, where do we go from here? What do you think are some of the important changes that are coming up? Well, uh, there are changes coming up and the changes that should come up in my mind. I think there's some People are getting some insight into this concept of transport system management again. We flirted with that notion in the late 1970s, 1980s, where they're starting to introduce high occupancy vehicle lanes and bus lanes and things like that, and starting to look for transport solutions to traffic problems and uh, recognising the relationship between transport and town planning particularly. But... Uh, and looking for the best transport solutions to transport problems rather than traffic solutions. We're starting to get people moving into that area. People are talking about smart transport, and we've also had the concept of intelligent transport systems coming to the fore. Now, that's very good so far as it goes, but to my mind, they're still not focusing on this issue of transport per se. If we could think in terms of virtual transport, just take the commuting problem. The smartest piece of transport, surely, is of ideas, is to get those ideas transported rather than to get the, the people who have got the ideas transported from one place to another. Similarly, the trans smart transport of goods, uh, if you can reduce the need to convey those goods over tremendous distances, for example, by getting shopping centres, specialist shopping centres closer to the points of greatest demand, that's smarter transport than finding a more efficient way of moving this derived demand of transport. We measure things like GDP and, and things, which are measuring both good and bad activities. Yep. And so if we've got more activity, we're deemed to be doing well. If everyone bought a golden hula hoop and didn't even use it to get fit or anything, we would think that we're in a boom time. That's right. That's, that's like getting... I saw in the paper not 
so long ago suggestion that we go back to doing what they did on Parramatta Road uh, or alleged to have done in Parramatta Road in the, uh, in the Depression days. They get one group of people to do, dig a hole, another group of people to fill it up. You've got, better, you've got more full employment than you would otherwise have if you've got no productivity. To that broad point you've made, recently residents in Melbourne's western suburbs say that the news of a city passenger ferry, so going from their area into the CBD, they were trialling that. They say that was welcome, but it was no substitute for local jobs, for putting jobs nearby rather than transporting people long distances. You must look at the amount of data that can be collected now with a degree of envy. In the earlier days, the amount of data was very limited, whereas now we're looking like we can have big data which will give us a huge amount of data. Well, that's right, and that will help us with forecasts as well as uh, with, with actually managing systems. We spoke earlier briefly about uh, the, the days of forecasting traffic demand, and the, the, we had a whole sequence of tra- Sydney transport studies in, that culminated in the early 1970s or mid-1970s with the Sydney Area Transportation Study. Now, that that was state-of-the-art study, but it, but it didn't have enough of the... Uh, uh, psychological input, if you like, into uh, project, predicting uh, uh, future growth of transport, and it introduced to a degree the concept of high occupancy vehicles, and made some passing reference to the importance of uh, considering freight as movement as a demand, but it didn't take on this idea at all of being able to able to manage the demand as well as the supply of transport. And it's the last major transport study that we've had in Sydney, uh, last major one. And and we would have so much more opportunity now to uh, improve the projections to to, uh, look at alternative uh, solutions than we had to do with the sorts of computer systems that were available then. And not just the computer systems, but the data input systems. Look at the ant system that we've got for measuring traffic flow at the moment. The important point is not to just have data, but to have information. So we still yeah. need skills of interpretation, don't we? Oh, yes, 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 yes. One of the things that I worry about, and I, I see some people raising the issue, things like the intense development around, around Green Square, which is really going to stimulate more, and I'm all for higher density development, but it's going to stimulate more employment in the CBD of Sydney rather than regionalise service development uh, around other parts of Australia. So I I just, even things like Green Square, I don't think they're making the right balance for the more strategic approach of uh, regionalisation that uh, the old Department of Planning and the, the current department uh, pay lip service to. It is an interaction of a whole system, isn't it? To the extent that they're focusing on making transport more efficient, they're still losing that, you know, if you like, more strategic interest of uh, making the conveyance of... Uh, of making the interface, if you like, or what's happening at the interface of community development, land use development and transport more efficient. They're only looking at one part of the problem. 
I think though there's there's the scope to open up conversations between between people like the the ITLS and the AITPM. If, if they could start talking to, to the, amongst one another, uh, that might start to break down some of the barriers. My concern is that we've often had a supply side approach yeah, to transport. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we like trains or buses or and, and public transport, and it is a good thing, there's no doubt about it, yeah. but we start there rather than a demand side and a management of a demand side. Now, in the past, I think it's been, you know, the answer's a train, now what's the question? Now we're moving to, well, the answer's technology, but we still got to go back to, well, what's the question? Yeah. What are we trying to achieve? Yeah, what's your objective? Yeah. And the objective is not necessarily to utilise the technology better, but to use the technology better to, util- to, to uh, attain your objective. Would you see the AITPM as maturing and embracing those sorts of things? Are you encouraged by that? I think it's got the opportunity to do it. I think it, it is. I haven't been close enough to it, and I, and I regret that. I haven't been close enough to be, to be able to measure in my own mind how rapidly that it's improving in that respect. But looking at the uh, sorts of material that comes uh, through the newsletter and through the, uh, uh, through the documentation of the uh, conferences that they've got, yes, I'd say that they're on the threshold of being able to do really good. If they can embrace this concept of transport management as distinct from traffic management and start to engage in conversation with the, the people who create the demand for transport, the, the transport planners and the uh, transport business planners and the land use planners uh, and the like, they can start to engage those sorts of people too. I think they've got a great future. Harry, thank you for your input. Thank you for your time. And thank you for your leadership that you've given to our industry. We are indebted greatly. And as I say, I really appreciate this chance to have a chat. Good to talk to you.